Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Well, you've come on a very exciting weekend here at Compass Bible Church because you never know what's going to happen on this particular weekend because once a year we open up the floor to have you ask questions. We normally, during this time, as you're visiting, we don't normally do this, but we're normally uh, expositing, uh, explaining a text of Scripture. We go through passage by passage, which uh, right now we're in the middle of Luke 22, which we'll return to next week. But today we get a chance to, uh, to instead of preaching a about a biblical passage, we'll give you a chance to ask any questions about the scripture that you might have. Any question about Christian life, any question about Christian doctrine, anything like that, any Bible-related questions, it is your opportunity. There's no scripts, there's no pre-planned questions, there's no submitting questions, there's no plants, at least not for me, there's not. So we're just opening up our mic. Now I got two guys with microphones here. I got Mark, I got Jay. And you flag them down, and we'll just jump right into it. And while one person has a mic on one side, if you're on the other side, flag the other person down, and uh, we'll get going. So here we go. We're going to dive right in. Pastor Mike, good morning. Good morning. Um, I was reading a book, uh, and the um, the guy said was saying that he knew a pastor who um, he didn't want to preach when he got to a passage that was awkward. He didn't want to preach through it. So obviously not being, uh, you know, expositor, expository, we, we understand that here at Compass Bible Church. Uh, the passage he was talking about in particular was First Peter uh, 2, 18 through 22. Right. And so uh, I've read Greg Harris's book, Darkness and the Glory, and that's a great, I think that's a great introduction to this topic. Um, as far as like how the spirits, you have Jesus um, proclaiming to the spirits, ministering to the spirits who left their place and went to a place that got prepared and they're in chains of gloomy darkness, as Second Peter talks about. Uh, my question more is about um, the proceeding from that. I mean, I think that corresponds with Noah and Genesis 6 and all of that, um, but I, I, I'm curious about verse 21 and 22 where he corresponds it with baptism and then uh, subjecting all the rulers and spirits and authorities to Christ. So my question is, how does Jesus proclaiming to the spirits uh, the um, Noah, the baptism, and subjecting spirits and rulers, and uh, how does that all correspond together? What is your view? Because the, the traditional place that is found in the correlation between Genesis 6 and the Jude text in this passage, is, is that your position? Uh, I, well, I think... I think um, that Peter takes this from the. He's taking this from Enoch. That's. I mean, that's what I've read. Right. Um, so he's he's seeing that the uh, you know the bloodline that Satan was trying to corrupt the bloodline. In right. Genesis six. But do so, you think it was a demonic infiltration? I guess is what I'm asking. Uh, yeah, I think that. Okay. That's a good All right. Well, well, that has been a very long-standing explanation in uh, extra biblical writings. Most Westerners today will dismiss that. And this is eventually going to get us back to Genesis 6 and the Ben Elohim, the sons of God, came to the daughters of men. And, and, and then what came from that. And, and so people are tying this text and others like it, and there's two others that would give some reference to, to that. It has been rejected by most moderns today as having any correspondence to actual demonic spirits having some kind of interaction with physical daughters of men. 
although I'm, I, I'm inclined to think that way, that has not been the longstanding tradition in interpreting that text. And most intertestamental books, most Old Testament pseudepigrapha will affirm that view, and that has been the plain reading of the text for centuries. I, I, I've written at least one paper on this, and I, I'm not sure how definitive I was even back then in saying I'm not sure. I, I, I do like... Fred Dickinson, and you've been around here long enough to know that, that maybe, have you read his book? He's got an appendix in uh, Angels, Elect, and Evil on this particular topic. I don't know if you've read that little appendix. He was my professor, personally, and I, I, I was convinced enough to say that his non-definitive, yes, this is what it is, was fairly convincing. I'm not sure I've ever been talked completely out of that, though I, I, I have to be careful because a lo- there's a lot of unanswered questions. That's a, that's a really hard question to start with in this particular Q&A. <laughs> All I can say is we're going to find out one day whether the longest standing tradition in interpreting that text and tying together Peter's reference and Jude's reference to this, is that really what's going on there? Or is it more of what the average pastor would stand up and say on a Sunday morning in, in the Western world and say, it's about the godly line of Seth. So, yeah. That's tough, but Angels, Elect, and Evil is in our bookstore. I know it's on, I think it's on Kindle. It's out there on uh, Logos as well, but he has an appendix that I thought was pretty persuasive back in the day because those notes in that book were what he was working from when he was my professor back in Chicago. Yeah, tough question. Morning, Pastor Mike. Morning. Um, I have a two-part question pertaining to Revelation 14, 6 through 11, um, which is the message of the three angels. So beginning in um, verse 9, uh, just to paraphrase, the third angel says, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he's toast. Pretty much. Well. Right? Yes. So my question, two-part, is, is this, taking the mark of the beast during the Great Tribulation, the, an unpardonable sin? And the second part is, if someone were to take the mark, which I don't recommend, then Well, that's later, good to know that you don't recommend that. <laughs> Then later genuinely repents, right. as our Lord says in Matthew twelve thirty one, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Can right. that person actually be saved? Well, you tied together the phrase blasphemy the Spirit with this. I think that's not a textual tie. That's just the way that we want to see it, because it seems like here is a statement, you do this and you're done. So I wouldn't tie that phrase from Jesus' teaching, which is very specific about these Pharisees and leaders who should know better, watching Jesus do miracles right in front of their face and saying, we, because of our jealousy and envy, think this is the work of demons, therefore we reject you and want all of our followers to reject you. Uh, Jesus said, that you're done. That's done. And I think if you read in the book of Hebrews, there's enough indicators that everyone's got that place of being done with God at some point. There are, are several references about going too far and trampling the blood of Christ underfoot with full knowledge that at some point God is going to say, you're done. Where is that? I don't know. And for every person, that's different. This passage seems pretty straightforward about what's going on in this period. I do think the intentionality of aligning ourselves with a world leader that clearly is against Israel and God's people during this period, I think that's pretty clear. And I wouldn't want to deviate from that clear teaching and try and tie in other passages of Scripture and say, well, there's got to be exceptions here. I'm going to say it seems pretty clear in the two or three times it's referenced in the book of Revelation, these folks, at least the ones that are described here, know what they're doing. They're aligning themselves with the world order at that time and saying we're a part of this, whether it's to save their own 
economy because they can't buy or sell without it, or whether it's just an alliance with the fact that we think this guy is, is, is deified, which is a lot of people what they're going to think, according to Paul in First Thessalonians. So, yeah, I, I want to stick with what it says, and I don't want to think too much beyond what the clear teaching of the passage says. And that is, listen, I would go even more than say I don't advise it. I would say it seems very clear you do this with that knowledge, you're done. And I think that wouldn't be unique. I wouldn't tie it to the phrase blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because that's not the same context that Jesus used that phrase in. But, you know, I know other people have said different, but that's, that's my view. Yeah. Wow, deep questions to get started here with. Toss me a softball. Good morning. No. Good. All right. Good morning, yes. Pastor Mike. Yes, yes. My question is not quite so deep. It's more, uh, it, it's a simple question. Okay. And well, I'll be the judge of that. But no, go, no, go ahead. Yes. More, more personal. Okay. Oh, wow. Um, See, it's already hard. All right. In a situation where the parental relationship towards a child has always been um, manipulative, uh, abusive. How old is the child? Oh, from a very young age. Okay. Uh, from, let's say, two, two years old okay. to the present. And how, where's the present? The how? present is now. I, I understand that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what I meant is, where, where is the present in terms of the chronology of the child's development? I mean, I don't mean you don't have to be specific, but in their 20s, they're like grown up. 60, 62 to be exact. Whoa, okay, so a lot, okay, got it. Yeah. 62 to be exact. Okay. Um, I was picturing 16, so that helps. Okay. In a, in a situation, it's a, life, a lifetime of this sort of uh, dysfunctional relationship. Okay. Use a different um, word for that. Let's hear that again. It, dis- describe it some other way. Um, well, unloving. Okay. That's abusive, better. Okay. Uh, use, use another word besides abusive. Um, hurtful. Okay. Unloving and hurtful. That's Painful, good. Painful. Agonizing. Okay, that's your reaction to it, but it's, okay, it's unloving, hurtful, got it. So the question After all is, these years, yes. Under these circumstances, is it a sin to truly not love your parents? Okay, so you're asking from a child's perspective. I get it. I thought you were talking about a, your attitude toward a child. No, toward your parents. To not be loving, no. I would say you know, my responsibility toward my parents is not a command to feel anything about my parents. I may or may not feel anything about my parents that's benevolent or kind or good or affectionate or warm or fuzzy or anything like that. But I am called to love my parents in the sense that when you go back to Genesis or Exodus chapter 20 and these adults in the wilderness were told to honor their parents, there was a real sense in which they're your responsibility. You, you take care of your parents and you honor them. Of course, it was also applied, as you see by Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, that children obey their parents. Little children obey their parents under their their direction. So there's an obedience to my parents that I'm supposed to have, and I please God in doing that when I'm a kid. And then there's an honoring of my parents that I do after I'm a child and I'm out of their home and I'm honoring them. That's a uh, expression of my love for them. Uh, my love for them is a, is a commitment to their well-being. That might be a better way to say it than the word love because love to us, we think of love songs and lyrics and, and feelings. But I'm supposed to have a commitment to my parents' well-being, which may or may not mean I'm having you know, Thanksgivings and Christmases with them. I don't necessarily mean, you know, you're, not, you're not required to do that. You may be the kind of situation where this is a bad relationship and every time we get together, it's a mess and there's anger and hurt and you know, insults. And so, oh, well, fine. But my benevolence, at least in terms of my commitment to their well-being, I think I have an obligation before God that my parents shouldn't be living under a, you know, a freeway underpass 
that it's my responsibility to show my benevolence toward my parents and, and care for them if there's a need. I'm going to do what I can to take care of my parents. I think that's the biblical Christian thing to do. It's showing piety toward my family, as Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 4, that even the non-Christians do, generally speaking, and uh, I should show love and exercise that kind of commitment to them. So I'd say this. No, you don't need any fuzzy feelings toward your parents if they've made that impossible or super hard. Uh, I don't think you have any obligations in terms of saying, uh, you know, I, I, I'm unbiblical and sinning against God if I'm not at every, you know, family event or frankly, any family event. But I don't, but I think if I could show you, here's your parents, they're living under an underpass while you're going on a cruise. I'm going to say, I think you got a problem before God at that point. Thank you. You're welcome. Taking my yes. Question. Okay. I am curious to know, uh, after the last judgment, everything Satan is chained yes. and thrown into the pit. Okay. I don't know if this is a... Why then? I trust in the Lord's decision. Okay, that's good. I'm curious. How come he will be released again right. later on? Right. Why is that? Well, let me... Let me re- sh- I'm sorry, go ahead. I mean, I shouldn't question God's ways, but right. I trust him. He's doing the best. For us. He's doing what's right. Okay. I, so, I appreciate so I am, that. Why would the world be again facing the tortures of Satan? Okay. Okay. You phrased the question, final judgment, and then you described a judgment that takes place in the beginning of the millennial kingdom and a release of Satan at the end of the millennial kingdom. That's not the final judgment. So that question, I need to rephrase it. Why? There's five different judgments in the scripture that God brings judgment to various people and groups. The last judgment, he will never be let out. That's what takes place at the end of that discussion about him being released. The judgment that you're talking about where he gets chained up is a description. There's two judgments at the end of the tribulational period. At the end of the tribulational period, that seven-year period, one of the judgments is throwing Satan and chaining him. And those are the words of Revelation 20 in this place called the lake of fire. That chaining of him there is a confining of him there until the end of that thousand years is over, then he'll be released for a short time. There is your question, right? So I'm going to say, God's not done yet. God's still working something out, and that's why he's released. Now, here's, let me explain why I think that takes place, though I can't quote you chapter and verse. Here's the logic of it. If our eschatology is right, that Christ is going to come back for his church, right, at, at any moment, and he's going to have the dead in Christ rise, then we're going to meet him in the air if we're still alive. It happens tonight. And then we're going to have a period of time that starts called the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulational period. And then at the end of that period, he's going to come back in Revelation 19 and save those people on the earth. Okay, we come back in resurrected bodies because we got those at the beginning before the tribulation started. At the end, we come back and start this thing called the millennial kingdom. We rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years while these people that now inhabit the millennial kingdom now populate the millennial kingdom. They live for many, many years, it says, in the book of Isaiah, to where if someone dies at 100, we'll be like, oh, that poor person, like when we bury a 10-year-old now. So they're going to live a long time. Satan will be chained during that period of time. You have generations, 1,000 years is a long time ago. Think about 1,000 years ago. A lot of people have been born in the last 1,000 years. In 1,000 years, a lot of people will be born. They've never known anything except for Christ ruling and reigning in Jerusalem on a throne his apostles sitting on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, us ruling and reigning with Christ, no tempter, people living long ages, everything being made right by Christ, everything's copacetic and perfect for the entire period of their existence. Some of them have likely lived for hundreds of years. 
And now God's going to say, we're going to bring in the eternal state. We're going to bring in the new heaven and the new earth, and we're going to have things permanently set. Those people that were born during that period of time, I think this is the logic behind Satan's going to be released for a short time. Because everyone in that planet at that point is going to have that moment of, wait a minute, there's another option here besides righteousness. And those people are going to have an opportunity to rebel against Christ. Everyone that comes into the kingdom has had that opportunity, see, to either be allied with Christ, be allied with God, if it's before the New Testament period, or to turn against God. The people in the millennium have never had that. That's why there's one last release of the enemy. And then it says, after that, done. Never released again. Satan is bound, and it's all over. Is that helpful? Is there a follow-up to that? A lot. Is, yeah, oh, I that's helpful a lot. Okay. Two times. You what? I didn't know it's happening twice. Oh, yeah. There's five different judgments in Scripture, starting with our Bema seat judgment at the very beginning. And the nations and Israel at the end of the millennial kingdom, at the end of the, the tribulation and the end of the millennial kingdom. Yeah. And he's judging different people at different times. But you can tease out of the scripture five different future eschatological judgments. Thank you. Yes, very good. Thank you very but you were talking about number four. We've got to wait for number five for complete end to the enemy. Are you there, sir? Good. Um, quick question. Um, Babylon in the book of Revelation, to me, it seems to very much talking about Rome and the Vatican. Second question, what's your viewing on, uh, I'm a King James only view perspective from, from the study of the Bible. Why so many translations that says so many things different from okay. the King James Bible? Great. I'll answer both of those if I can. You wouldn't be the first to see in the Revelation chapter 17 and 18 description of what's called Babylon, a religious element as it's described, saying this looks a lot like the Roman Catholic Church. Books written on that. Lots of people have thought that. Recents have thought that. Recents have written books on that. And I can't deny that there's a lot of parallels between the false system of Rome and what they teach and what you see described in that passage. It talks about being made rich and having all the best. All I can say is what's described in Scripture at the end of time in this tribulational period is a governmental power and a religious power that merge together. And the religious power gives allegiance to the political power. And everyone then, going back to the first question, is told to give allegiance to that that leader. So that religious power is corrupt. It's not right. And all I'm saying is that false prophet at the head of that religious system, and you're saying, oh, we've got someone for that because the Roman Catholic Church has a pope and they've got a head of theirs. There's going to be some system, whether it's that or something else, that has a leader that then gives allegiance to this, this antichrist, this ultimate antichrist, not one of the many antichrists that John talked about, but the man of lawlessness. So could be, I don't know, but you're going to have a religious system that claims some form of godliness, has a hierarchy, has a leader, and ends up telling everyone to be following this person. Could be, you can read it for yourself in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, but I do think most of the height of literary works produced in favor of tying religious Babylon with Rome came in the post-Reformation period when every book written seemed to be about slamming the Roman Catholic Church. So there was a lot of fanciful stuff, I think, and imagination that went into that, even though there are connections that you can't ignore when you look at the profile here and then you look at the reality of the Roman Catholic Church. So we'll see. I don't know. King James only. The King James Bible is primarily a debate about the New Testament manuscripts. Old Testament, of course, 
not a lot of debate. Although I suppose a King James-only person wouldn't want us to consider the Dead Sea Scrolls or give any much weight to the Septuagint. Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls found many years after the Masoretic Text was established, although a Masoretic Text comes later in the 10th century AD in terms of its codification. Blah, 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 blah. The New Testament is the real concern. The King James-only people say this. The King James-only people will say, God clearly preserved his word in what came to fruition in English in the 17th century. And they talk about the 1611 King James Bible. No one reads the 1611 King James Bible. I have a facsimile in my office, but you, you have one that's been revised at least six times since that came out. Uh, that's the King James you have, I'm sure, on your phone and in your, your library. So even that, we don't talk about a 1611 because no one really reads the 1611. Uh, it's been revised many times. Nevertheless, that 1611 King James Bible that came out from, from Hampton Court was based upon the work of Erasmus and his work on the Greek New Testament. What he did, working with what he had available at Cambridge when he put this all together, was a body of Greek manuscripts that primarily were late manuscripts, and by that I mean anywhere from 800 to 1200 to 1300 years after the original writing of the New Testament. They're a family of texts that bear the same kinds of characteristics that we call the Byzantine manuscript. When Erasmus put this together and kind of put together a very uh, contemporary for his day, 200 years before the King James Bible, a Greek New Testament, because that was the original language. He assembled all the stuff he had before him. That was the basis for what came out in, in the 17th century. Unfortunately, the reason he had so many Byzantine manuscripts is because the Byzantine Empire was where everyone still spoke Greek for centuries. We have found and have many manuscripts from a lot of different places. We have families of texts that we have from Egypt, the Alexandrian family of texts. We have the Caesarean family of texts. We have the Western family of texts. And then we have the Byzantine family of texts. They're all in the Greek and they're ancient papyrus of the Greek. But the Byzantine is gigantic because they spoke Greek for so long and you could buy a Greek Bible and, and have one in churches all the time. Well, not in Egypt. They were speaking Coptic. They'd speak Aramaic. In, in Caesarea, and they'd speak Latin out in the Western manuscripts of churches. So you had the Byzantine with giants. So when, when Erasmus did his work, that's what he had. They were very late manuscripts. Those late manuscripts had huge amounts of conflated readings. When I say huge, I'm talking about such a small portion of New Testament passages. But in terms of textual criticism, a lot of conflated readings. In other words, if you were to go back to the second, third, fourth, fifth century, and look at, at the writings, say, of, of, of our Luke text, which I, whatever, Luke text. If you found a passage, I'm just being an example here. They taught in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, let's just say that's one text. And then you find another text, and, and it's over here in another region. It says that he preached in the name of the Lord Christ. The Byzantine text, when they had connections with those manuscripts would then put in the text, they'd conflate those two readings, and they say, and they preached in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that became increasing over the centuries. They kept conflating texts whenever they found a, 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 a difference. That created extra verses, extra words. Whenever there was a, a, an issue, there would be a, an addition. That got locked in place with Erasmus, and then it got locked in place with the King James Bible and James Hampton Court in the 17th century, and then it comes down to our grandparents and we have it. Then you say, well, let's, if we want to take all the manuscripts that we have and not just hang out in the 10th, 11th, 12th century. Let's go all the way back and find as many manuscripts as we have. You have to create a conspiracy to say 
all of those are somehow satanic or it's Roman Catholic or there's something wrong with those texts, which is what the King James only a lot of guys have written. And yet I'm going to say any reasonable reading of the differences between those texts, you're going to say it makes a lot of sense that this was probably the original reading. We have plenty of witnesses to it dating way back to second, third century. And it makes perfect sense that you would conflate a reading like that, which is what most of the Byzantine readings are. And therefore, you'd say, wow, if I really want to know what John wrote, or I want to really know what Luke wrote, and this is just affecting a small portion of verses in the Bible. I don't want anything taken out of the Bible, and I don't want anything added to the Bible. And when a King James person holds up their King James and go, look at your Bible, your ESV, your NASB, whatever it is, your NIV, it's taking words out of the Bible. I'm going to say, you're judging what should be in the Bible not based on all the manuscript evidence. You're basing what should be in the Bible based on a 1611, which is not 1611, 17th century English text that's based on a 15th century Greek text that takes into no consideration all the rest of the, the evidence out there. That's as good as I can do on a brief thumbnail. I'm saying we should take all of those things into consideration and not just believe that somehow what we've got is no better chance to reassemble what was originally written by looking at all the evidence by only saying I'm only going to look at part of the evidence and I'm going to look at late evidence and that's what we that's where we come from with the King James only crowd so uh, two books that might be helpful one I think is very respectful it's very uh, understandable written by a top-notch scholar Don Carson D.A. Carson should be in our bookstore it's called the King James Version Debate subtitle a plea for realism King James Version version Debate, A Plea for Realism. He will, in much more articulate terms, put together what I've just talked about and give you all the evidence you need. If you're dealing with people that are up there saying, as they've come to my office and said it, they've laid a King James Bible down, they've laid my Bible down, they say, one of them's the Word of God, one of them, one's of God, one's of Satan. I've had those guys in my office. Then I'm going to take you to James White's book. It's, it's called King James Version... KJV debate, James White, King James Version, look that up. It's five times the length of Carson's book, but it's going to deal with all of those kinds of arguments. And, and so James White, King James Version, I forget the complete title. Someone can yell it out if you know it or looked it up. But Carson is simple. It's a primer. It's, it's right to the issues, and it's probably only 120 pages. Well, White's book's probably 400 pages. But both of those are good to have in your library because you're going to run into people that, that start telling you this is from Satan because we're actually looking at all the available manuscript evidence because there are no original manuscripts of the New Testament or Old Testament because it's written on papyrus. It's all gone away just like any other document from antiquity. We don't have the, the original manuscripts. We have to piece them together based on what's left. And what's left when it comes to the New Testament is huge amounts of ancient documents. And all I'm saying is I want a translation in my New Testament that's going to take all of those into consideration, not just some of them. Because Erasmus at Cambridge, when he did his work, in some passages had no Greek manuscripts at all. He went to the Vulgate, took Jerome's 4th century Vulgate, and used that. And for the people that want to be King James only because they're so anti-Catholic, that was the Bible of the Catholic Church. And there's no other readings in the Greek New Testament that ever found their way into those passages that sometimes Erasmus, because he had nothing else, would use the Vulgate and translate into the Greek text. So he took Latin and went back into Greek. And then from Greek, 200 years later, they put it in the King James Version. And there was no manuscript evidence that he had, nor was there any, of these passages in any Greek manuscripts at all. And again, I'm saying that's a problem for me. So anyway, but if you are a King James person, that's great. I mean, we're glad that you're here and there's no, you know, let's not fight over this. 
Uh, and I've had people fight with me over, and I don't want to fight. I just, I just want to, I want to, I just want to be honest about, you know, what we've got to deal with. And if you could convince me that somehow this is satanic, and I've had them in my office, pastors, leaders of that movement, I, I'm just not convinced. Yeah. Okay. Hi. Hi. Sorry, that was. Was that too long? It was too long, wasn't it? I, maybe mine will be easier. Oh, maybe. So mine's an application question about giving. Yeah. Um, when it comes to the church, that's really clear because it's my church and that's where I give. Right. The part where I get just confused and a little overwhelmed is how often God talks about giving to the poor. Yeah. And meeting those needs of people and feeding the hungry and those things. And right. I don't know exactly what that looks like right, right now today for me and how I put that into action here. Right. Yeah. Well, I would never want you to violate your conscience and move in a direction of thinking that you're being unloving. But I think we need to be very careful when we look at what's going on through most of the Bible that you have genuinely needy people who would not eat and they would starve were you not to give them alms, as it's put, and give them a handout. By the time you got to the Thessalonian culture, for instance, and Paul is writing in the first century about Thessalonica, you could live off of just asking people for money and you're not going to starve and you could work and there's plenty of things you could do even when paul writes in first timothy 4 about taking care of widows there were people out there taking care of widows they were like organizations we would have today there's women's shelters for battered women there's rescue missions i was talking about someone between the services about the orange county rescue mission there's all kinds of places matter of fact i used to hand out to our pastors a long list of places you could go right now to get a bed to get a meal to get people to take care of you to get all kinds of stuff I mean, I can, give you, I can give you a list with you. You can go get free cell phones. You probably get satellite dishes and flat screen TVs for all I know. But you've got all kinds of things that I could help you with right now. When Paul looks at his culture that was nowhere near that, he starts now rebuking people saying in what we call third person imperatives, which is don't let this happen. In other words, when he speaks of someone who's unwilling to work, you should not let him eat, which means the command is you, you should not be aiding or abetting in any way a party to that guy not doing what God arranged from the beginning, and that is you work so that you can eat. And as it says in Proverbs, your hunger should spur you on to do that labor. So that, Paul is concerned about people that really aren't in need. They're just living off the charity of other people. We're living in America right now. It's a completely different ball game than what you had in Solomon's day or in David's day, or in Samuel's day, when so much of the passages that convict us by the guy standing in the parking lot of Costco, and you're going, oh man, I feel like I should do that because the Bible says that, you've got to rethink a little bit of the context of what we're talking about. In, in one way, I've got to make sure that I'm not violating the text of Scripture, which says, wait a minute, there's a million ways, at least in our culture, to meet those needs. As a matter of fact, our taxes are meeting a ton of those needs. And for me, I should not, if I'm informed about scripture and culture, I'm not going to say that passage is making me give anyone who asks me for anything, I'm supposed to give that to them. Even the context of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus was talking about that is a very different distinction than what we got going on when today people can turn $100,000 a year tax-free by standing at the corner of a higher scale supermarket or chain store or club store. That's going on all the time. Again, I'd rather you err on the side of your charity if you, if you want to do that. But if you see Mike Fabares passing by that guy, don't say, oh, he's in sin. He's not practicing what he preaches. I've, and early in my days, I used to be much more, let's talk. And, you know, and every time, by the time I get cussed out because I'm trying to help someone, that's the time I like, whatever. And I look careful their shoes. Like, you know, if you're real, I, I help people 
I give the shirt off my back to people if I need to, right? You can ask people I hope that know me best. That's my family, at least. I've given away good stuff they wanted because someone has a need. But it's usually not the parallel between the people, even in parts of the world now, where if you don't give them something, they may not be able to eat today. That's not what's going on normally when we feel the tug to give away a $10 bill because I'm thinking of a scriptural passage in Proverbs. So... But yes, and here's how one of my pastors used to put it when in our day. When I go to a small group today, even that, I need to think about, there are some people that don't even have the cultural standards of what we're used to in our culture. And in that regard, I need to think, if I got three cars at my garage, two of them I don't drive, and I got a gal in my small group who's trying to take Uber or the bus to get to small group, I need to help the poor in that case because there's someone here in my body, and the Bible says this in Galatians 6, I first try to do good to the family of God. And then beyond that, as 1 Timothy 4 says, even in that passage, Galatians 6 says, yeah, I want to be helpful. But I think we need to be careful of applying apples to oranges when I'm, I'm, I'm in a culture with a lot of safety nets. And I'm not asking you to be cold-hearted. And again, you want to stop and give your money away in those situations. I'm just saying, at some point, your conscience is going to work in the other direction. What am I doing here in terms of what God said? I'm not supposed to be aiding. Because I hope you know, right? I mean, I have stopped at enough problems to help. And I, I know you guys have too. We have good-hearted people in our church. You know what I'm saying. You nodded enough, but I think we're on this. We're tracking. All right. Hi, Pastor Mike. Hi. Every year when I read through Job, I mm. hit the same passage and I'm always curious. God is so holy and so perfect and so pure. Yes. How is it that he would allow Satan to come into his presence right. because he is so evil? It seems like yeah. it doesn't go with so many verses I read. Yeah. Well, we need to understand that God is not a equation. He's not a formula. He's a person. He's got right now the administration sovereignly over all things. Here is someone, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4, who's been given a, a leash to do his stuff in this world. He's not going to let his saints, in that case, Job, have something befall him if he doesn't have a part in that, if he doesn't give permission to that. If we talk about God who's so holy, like Habakkuk, which we often think of in Habakkuk chapter 1, when we think about God's too holy to look on evil, that's where we get that verse from, you got to read the rest of the book. The whole point is he's saying, how can this happen? You're using the Babylonians to punish the, Jew, the Jews, and, and I don't understand how you can do that. That's exactly what's happening. God is enlisting these bad guys to punish his good guys because the good guys have been bad. And, and Habakkuk is frustrated about that. And he asks that question. Well, then you open your Bible to Job 1 and say, well, yeah, I guess God isn't the kind who can't have Satan in his presence because he's clearly there. And that's what it says. Satan has interaction. I'm confident as it says in Job 1, and we're led to believe throughout the scripture, there's stuff going on all the time in the heavenly realms. I, I, I believe regarding God's oversight and the spiritual warfare that goes on in this world. But don't think that that's a comfortable experience any more than a someone working for the Orange County uh, Prosecutor's Department or, or, or uh, justice system having the worst of the worst in their office, dealing with whatever issues it might be, whether it's prosecutor's office or city uh, county attorney or whatever. I'm just saying there's going to be interaction, just like there is between a judge who's a righteous, holy judge and people that he has jurisdiction over and has to sentence. God is having those interactions. The whole world, speaking of the passage we started with in Revelation, is going to be called at the Bema Seat of Christ at the final judgment at the great white throne judgment, every sinner in the world is going to stand before God in his presence. 
And God is going to sit on the throne. And according to Acts 17, Christ is going to be the one who actually sentences them. But there's the holy triune God who dwells, 1 Timothy 6, in unapproachable light, who's pure, yet he's having sinners in his breath. We're just going to have to get comfortable with that reality and not quote Habakkuk 1 as though it's an equation. It's actually Habakkuk's mind-boggling thought, like you and I have, how can God do this? He's doing it. He's having administrative connection with spiritual forces that are evil. Yes? Okay. um, There are people who are claiming to be Christians using scriptures such as Isaiah 40, 22, where God sits above the circle of the earth. Mm -hmm. Isaiah uh, 66, 1, the earth is my footstool. Mm -hmm. And 1 Samuel 2, 8, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Right. They're claiming that the, um, the world is other than a sphere. Right. And that um, the rulers of this world are hiding God from us. And that... Um, but anyway, can you clarify these scriptures in context? Sure. Well, I... And, I okay, I, go ahead. Sorry. I no, no. And what would you say to someone using the, this thought in their evangelism? Oh. And what resources would you point them to for accurate understanding of those scriptures. Yeah. Okay. The Bible is not the Encyclopedia Britannica. It is not trying to put things in the most concrete terms. It is a book that teaches primarily through narrative. It is filled with rhetorical analogies, similes, illustrations, poetic languages, idioms. The idioms about the foundations of the world, the pillar pillars of the, of the earth on which it's founded, they should not be understood any, any more constrictively than saying that God's going to hide me under the pinions of his wings or, or, or God's hand was heavy upon me. In the Psalms, as David responds, Psalm 51, I don't think God has fingernails. I don't think God has feathers. This is providing something for me in the context that's as clear as someone building an edifice in an ancient world in Assyria or Babylon with gigantic columns, it's a sturdy thing. Go out and move the earth around. You can't. It's established. It's strong. Here are poetic statements about architecture. There are no pillars. No, one, no author of Scripture is thinking there's pillars. So I, I'm going to say, stop. Let's, let's, let's get him to befriend Elon Musk and send him up you know, in the next rocket and check this thing out. And, and by the way, we didn't need NASA to figure this out. Go back in, in ancient you know, mathematics even to, to, uh, to figure out we're on a sphere and not on, the earth is not flat, right? There's a flat earth movement. I understand that. And I don't believe it. I think it's crazy. It's those who, in, who enlist scripture. And there are plenty that don't enlist scripture. There's non-Christian flat earthers. It's, it's nonsense. And I don't need NASA to figure that out. And, and, you, and he, they wouldn't either. Matter of fact, you can go online and find ways which even... The ancients can figure this out, and certainly today we can figure this out uh, just by simple mathematics that we're living on a sphere. And you can go back, even before we talk about flat earth, round earth, you know, heliocentric, geocentric universe, where there's enough evidence, I think, to say a lot of this was debated long before it was confirmed, even though these folks think it's not confirmed. Using an evangelism, 
Please have them stop. I mean, please have them stop. And I know you can't stop them because they're conspiratorialists. And conspiratorialists love the conspiracy. Whether it's about the Bible is all corrupt because there's a secret Westcott and Hoard are in a secret club at their Ivy League school. Or whether it's, you know, NASA. This was all filmed on a lot in Burbank. I don't know how I can convince people when they say my mind is made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. But that's what we have when it comes to conspiratorial thinkers. I can't get past the evidence. We have to be reasonable about all things. And when it comes to that, I have no problem seeing the comparative use of similes, analogies, turns of phrase, rhetorical issues, Hebrew idioms to say, this is the communication of something. What's the passage trying to teach me? And in those cases, trying to teach me the firm establishment of something bigger than any building you could ever build, the earth that we live on. Uh, it's not a, a, a geo, you know, it's not a geologist uh, statement or a statement about physics. It's a statement about the earth. Yeah. The world is round. It's a sphere. It's not flat. Yes. So I'm a freshman in college, or I just finished my freshman year. Congratulations. Thank you. That's big. It was rough. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, And this has been on my mind all year. So all my life, I've been told that anxiety is wrong and sinful, and I think that's true. But it's, I feel like it's kind of like fear in the way that there's a type that's okay, like my first summer revival I went to, you were preaching on theophobia and how the fear of God is definitely appropriate and it glorifies him and it should be had by all Christians mm-hmm. because it's recognizing his power and his authority. Right. Um, so this is what kind of got my mind going was in Matthew when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says that he was sorrowful and troubled. And in Luke, in the same section it says that he was in agony right. praying earnestly and then in mark it says that he was greatly distressed right and troubled so yeah. Yeah. where do we draw the line of when like that distress is okay no i think that's fair i think that's very fair for instance the, the comfort and consolation and joy that should be the norm in the christian life is not the verses or nor the expectation i'm going to rush in when i have a widow who has their husband pass away. I understand the process of grieving, and I understand that. And even as C.S. Lewis wrote in his book on grief, A Grief Observed, when his wife died, he starts out that book with saying, I didn't know how much that grief was like fear. And it is. If you've ever grieved, really grieved, there's that same sense of unsettled, nervous fear. And, And in that regard, it's the same kind of emotive response. And you're saying, well, wait a minute, that's not what God is calling us to in scripture. And yet I understand grief. Grief is a process that I've got to to deal with. So it is with anxiety. As Jesus was going off to be crucified naked on a Roman execution rack by professional executioners who were called not just to kill him, but to to torture him, the distress of that night, I'm, I'm all about the fact that this should not be a casual night for you. And if it were, I would think there's something wrong with you. If a a widow is crying and I'm with her at the hospital when the doctor comes out and says, your husband just passed away, I expect you not to go, let's sing a hymn together. I expect some distress. But I also expect, as Paul said to the Thessalonians, that it's tempered. There's a tempered distress. And in that regard, Christ's distress in the garden was tempered. Why? Because he said, but not my will, but yours be done. So I know in his mind there was a sense in which he was anchored in the midst of a stressful, distressing, agonizing situation, to use those biblical words, 
and yet was anchored in something that made it look different than a guy going out to be executed naked by Romans and be like freaking out. Peter, what am I going to do? Peter, what am I going to do? He wasn't that, but he was distressed. And I think there's a kind of anxiety that can be reasonable in terms of just the sense that my my daughter in, in, in neonatal ICU, to have a sense of distress over that, that is that unsettled, the Greek word is marizomai, and that means to have my mind going in different directions. That ping pong feeling of what if, what if. There's a sense in which you would say, I hope, that is a reasonable reaction to this situation like Christ's reasonable distress in the garden. But even my anxiety should be, it should be tempered that I don't grieve like the rest of the world. And I'm not anxious like the rest of the world either. There's something different about mine because I know it's not all about this life. That kind of understanding, I think, of the human emotions of reactions to circumstances, great. But most people that bring up anxiety in terms of the Christian life, they're not dealing with, I'm about to go possibly be killed. I'm about to have my daughter possibly die. I think my husband is terminally ill. They're dealing with, I don't know if everyone on social media likes me. There's an anxiety that grips people. I'm not trying to make fun of that or be condescending because I know people in this room struggle with that. But I'm saying, if you're comfortable with that kind of anxiety that I'm saying, no, 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 no. Cast your anxieties on the Lord. He cares for you. Turn that anxiety into prayer. You've heard us preach on that a hundred times. That should mitigate my anxiety, I would say, in trivial matters to almost nil. But if you have something horrific happen, I would expect the kinds of things that lead to scriptural practices like fasting. Fasting is not like most of us think where people are just trying to get more in, in touch with God, although it can be used that way. Most fasting in the Bible is a reaction to a distressing situation where like when I'm at a hospital dealing with a family in distress, I'm not going, hey, what, you want canes or, or Chick-fil-A today? They don't, they're not interested in food right now. Matter of fact, you have to try to talk them into it three meals later to maybe go to the cafeteria and eat a little something. That's fasting. That's, that's most of biblical fasting is people reacting that way. And it's a normal kind of marizomai. And I understand that. But I'm just saying... I think when someone says, I'm an anxious person, but, you know, that's just reasonable. I just want to know what you're saying is making that reason. Let's talk about the source of that. And then I think so often we can see it's that my prayer life stinks or I I care way too much about people. I have the fear of man, not the fear of God. And if that's all taken care of, then I would say, yeah, the episodic ups and downs of of an emotive reaction to distressing situations, I'm not going to rush in and go, wait a minute, you're just in sin. Look at what the Bible has to say here. And I think the Bible gives us plenty, plenty of room for that kind of lenience. The only exception I can think of is when God goes to the prophet and he says, I'm going to kill your wife and I don't want you to mourn about it because I want to show, I want you to show the people how much worse their sin is than you losing your wife. And everyone asked him then, what's wrong with you? Your wife died and you're not even grieving. That's a one exception I can think of in the scripture where for the sake of illustration, God expects no response out of a guy for a terribly distressing situation. But that was unique. And the exception, which proves the rule, I think. Is that helpful? Maybe? A little bit? Okay, great. Back here. Uh, hello, sir. Hello. Um, thank you for taking my question. Uh, my name is Paul Thompson. I've studied the scriptures. Um, I've even gone to school. I have my master's in theology. And um, I can't seem to figure out um, about works. Um, if you look at John 3.36, it says, um, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's uh, wrath remains on them. Basically, who who doesn't obey the Son? Um, You know, a lot of people have been pointing me to Ephesians 2, where it talks about uh, works. uh, You know, it's by grace, and we're saved uh, through faith, and it's not of our own doing. But then, if you look at Ephesians 2.10, it says that 
Uh, we are Jesus' workmanship, um, created for good works. Um, Matthew 25, where the illustration of, you know, separating the sheep from the goats. I'm looking at those as like works, you know, people that help the homeless and, and um, you know, visit the sick and stuff like that. Uh, Romans 2, it says that um, God will render to each one according to his works. And um, it says that uh, for those who do evil and those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, there will be wrath. Um, Titus 1.16, those who profess to know God but deny, but deny him by their works, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Um, if you could please expound on the topic of works as it pertains to salvation and um, how God's grace ties into this, because I'm really kind of struggling with a- this. Excellent question, yeah. How many of you have been through our partners program here at Compass Bible Church? All right. In the first chapter, we try to do our best to show how all of those passages we can say amen to, every single one of them. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and Ephesians 2, 10. Amen. It's all true. Amen. I affirm every bit of it. Because we understand the necessary role of good works. Now, here's the problem with my parents' generation, and even the way they raised me, and not my parents personally, but the Christian church a decade ago. We had all the cult seminars. We had all the concern about the cults, all about the works righteousness that's out there. So we started preaching grace, pure grace, grace, pure grace. And all that was a discussion about the fact that we're saved by grace, saved by grace. We love to quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We never got to verse 10. And in that regard, we started thinking, wait a minute. You only, all this work stuff, stop talking about works. Well, the Bible doesn't stop talking about works. As a matter of fact, it even uses it as the basis to figure out whether or not we have faith. That's what James says, right? You say you have faith. Hey, show me your works. Where's your works? You got works, and I'll believe you got faith. Because even demons have faith, but they don't have works. Therefore, we know they don't have the kind of faith that saves. Can that faith save you? Of course it can't. So what we have to remember is that the Bible has no shying away from works as a necessary response that comes with salvation. I know that right now I could be a thief on a cross, dying in my last breath, live a completely sinful, debauched life, and if at the last moment of my life I were to put my trust in Christ, I would be saved. I don't recommend trying to time your salvation that way, but I would say that's completely grace, and you'd say it's grace. But let's say I did that at 18, and then I lived to be 88. So 70 years of living, and I say, okay, I'm a follower of Christ, followers of Christ bear fruit. They prove that they're real by bearing fruit. I need to live a life of good works. The end of my life, God will look at my life and go, I can tell you're saved, as though he needs to look at my externals. He knows my heart. But everyone else can say, Mike's saved. Look at his record of good works. Why? Because it's not just the gospel and the response of repentance and faith that equals salvation. It's that the gospel plus the response of repentance and faith equals salvation plus good works. And that's what my parents' generation didn't do a very good job in instilling in my generation, which was works are massively important, not because they save us, but because they accompany salvation. That's why we're not saved by our works, but someone who's saved is going to produce works. And even in the example I gave you of the man dying on a Roman execution rack next to Christ, he only lived for a couple of hours, I suppose, after that exchange, and he's still starting to show good works. Why? He's rebuking the other guy for disparaging Christ. I mean, we have a moment of him doing something that shows, hey, this conversion is real. So if you have time in your life, after your conversion, you will bear fruit. And that, from an external perspective, is, as James puts it, the justification of your faith. 
It's not the justification of your salvation. You don't get justified because of works. But it justifies in an onlooking world. Just like Abraham. Everyone knew he loved God. Why? Because he took his son up to Mount Moriah and was willing to kill him. Look at that work. Everyone else said this is a man of faith. God knew it was he was a man of faith from the very beginning. So if you compare James 2 with Romans 4, and you see Romans 4 saying he's justified at the moment of his faith. And then you see James saying, look, his faith was justified by him going to offer his son Isaac. You recognize, oh, wait a minute. One is speaking of our justification being by grace and nothing but grace. And the other one is saying, if I'm saved by grace, guess what has to necessarily come with that? A life of good works. That's why I'm hoping in our generation, at least the church I pastor, we're seeing a much more biblical view of this, where I don't disparage good works or not quote verse 10. I hardly ever, and I'm sure you're going to come up with times I have, but I hardly ever quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 without quoting verse 10. We're not saved by works, but we're made for good works. See, Paul wrote all of that for us to understand the whole equation. And unfortunately, the last generation made us memorize Romans 2, 8, and 9 without Romans 2, 10. So that's how they go together. Yeah. Hi there. Hopefully this one's a little bit of a softball. But oh, I uh, doubt that coming from you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so ah. years ago when my wife was sick, one yes. of the things that I was told, I used to tell people that if she was here with us after her, um, you know, God's going to do great work through her sickness. Yes. And I'm hoping she's going to be here to celebrate it. That was what I said. Okay. And I had some people who were not with our church that always were telling me that I was of little faith. Right. Because James 5... Uh, 15 says, and the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick. Right. And I used to argue with them. I'd say that was a very dangerous statement to make because right. I am very faithful. I love my wife deeply. And if she passes, it doesn't mean that I have lack of faith. Right. And I'm curious what your answer to those people would be. Yeah, I would say, and if I trust, well, I would turn it back on them. I would say, have your great-grandparents died? Have your parents died? Have your, you know, every single Christian is going to have the terminus of their loved one's life at some point. And I think very few of these folks that use this as the standard, which is one passage that unfortunately, and we'll talk about it in context if I have time in a second, but the idea of them saying, it's all about you having enough faith. I'm saying, where are the 550-year-old people in those families? Because at some point, what, tell me, where was your faith then? I guess that's a never-ending absolute promise in every situation. You're going to have 1,000-year-old people around here. And we don't. Every, as I say often, every faith healer dies. Why? They're teaching this stuff. You have faith, you live forever. That's what they're known for. And frankly, I don't want to get into these stories. I've met some of these guys personally. The shysters on TV. And unfortunately, some of our paths have crossed. And we've had conversations. And I'm telling you, it is a farce. These guys know many of them. I'm not saying not all of them. Some of them may be deceived. But most of them are deceivers. They're getting up on a stage and telling people the reason you're sick is you don't have enough faith. While they're dealing secretly with their own cancer, diabetes, or whatever they're dealing with. And when their loved ones get in that situation and die, they turn the other way and they never bring it up as a story on their program. Well, we see it in the scripture all the time. We understand death is the reality. We understand that God's keeping of his promise is that all of us are going to get sick and die. So I guess I would respond in short to them that it's no lack of faith for me to say but your will be done. Jesus said the same thing. I have an ardent desire that my loved one will remain on with me because I love her. As Paul said, I'd be bereft. I would be torn. I'd be, God spared Epaphras. Why? Because he knew it'd be so hard on me. I understand wanting to pray that people be healed in our family that are sick. And we should, and that's great. But I do think we put that provision. As the Bible says, we say, but the Lord's will be done. 
I'm supposed to say, if the Lord wills. That's not a lack of faith. And I understand when people call me to their bedside, they think they should get their money back, so to speak, right? Because I didn't, you know, raise my hand and call on all the nurses and say, hey, this person's going to be healed. I believe that. I just, that is, I'm supposed to pray always with a deference to the will of God. That's what Ephesians 6 says. And certainly in uh, James 5, if you look at that passage, you'll see the context is there are people that are in sin. They've done sinful things. They need to be reconciled to God and forgiven for whatever it is. I'm assuming it's a context of a loved one in their church. And he says if they confess their sin, pray in faith, God will heal them. The immediate context is very different. Someone's lying in a, in a state of illness because of the discipline of God. Just like in 1 Corinthians when he says some among you are weak, sick, and have even died. And if you would judge yourself, you wouldn't be judged. In other words, all of those illnesses would be reversed in, in Corinth that he was specifically speaking of if they would just repent of their sins. And then, guess what? If they had faith and said, God, forgive me, I've done wrong, the discipline would stop and they would all be healed. I'm assuming that's not what was going on with your wife. I mean, we should talk about that. But no, now she's back with us, doing well, I assume. We're doing well. That, to me, would be the answer. I don't know how short that answer was, but I would say the context of James 5 does not give me carte blanche to say every time I have faith, if that were the case, you'd have all kinds of Christians that are living to be 500 years old. 300 years old, 2,000 years old. Why did, why did Paul's friends ever die? He had faith. That's because they misunderstand the scriptures. All right. <clears throat> out of time. Are we out of time? Should we do one? How quick is your question? Let's go for it. Let's try. Wherever the microphone is. Or not. No? Yes? Yes. Okay. Yes. Pastor, um, Pastor Mike, Pastor. I'm going with Pastor Pete to Israel, and this question is geared around that. Okay. Okay. Um, Dr. John MacArthur was on Zechariah 9 yeah. this last week uh-huh. and talking about all the judgment of the um, enemies of, of Israel. Right. But as I was reading it, it seems like he was going to destroy Jerusalem too. But he has a dream that he sees all these pastors in white. Right. And I guess it's a pers- prophetic dream. Right. And my question is, then if that's true, did uh, Alexander Great, did he come to the point where he accepted uh, salvation? Right. And, and since we don't have a lot of time, I'll simply say this. You need to compare Zechariah 9 with Zechariah chapter 14. You've got to remember that Zechariah was sent to prophesy to Judea before Babylon came and took them out in 586 B.C. There was an immediate fulfillment of that prophecy and God's judgment against Judah and the prophetic portions of that reach their fruition in chapter 14 of Zechariah that speaks of God's ultimate salvation of Israel and the punishment of their enemies. So there's a telescopic double fulfillment of God's promises in the end of that book. It's a very difficult book in many ways to unravel because of the way that it's laid out in kind of this circular telescopic way. Um, But since it's past the time, you know, and since Pastor Pete is taking you on this trip, that's a great question for Pastor Pete for him to get the details of. But Look carefully at, at, at the 14th chapter compared to the 9th chapter, and I think it will help you see, okay, some of these things must be happening in the 6th century B.C., and some of these have not been fulfilled yet when God himself, it says, will put his feet on the Mount of Olives and split the place and solve all the problems, which I think is the beginning of the millennial kingdom. All right, we're out of time. But let's pray together, and then we'll let you go. Pray with me, please. God, thanks for our time, and I know it's all over the map, and it's my fear every time I do these that we... 
um, just give them a hodgepodge of, of things to think about. But I pray that you would, by your grace and by your spirit, give us some things to latch on to here this morning that would be edifying, that would be encouraging, that would be helpful for us, that would build us up in our faith, that motivate us and move us on to be the kinds of people that you've called us to be. So thank you, God, so much for our time together. Dismiss us now with a sense of your favor in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You are dismissed.